NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With many fisheries at or beyond the point of collapse, the Bush administration wants to expand fish farming out into the deep ocean. We've calculated that by 2025, we are going to be needing 4 million metric tons more seafood than we eat today. And the only place that can come from is fish farming. One option would employ abandoned offshore oil well and drilling platforms, but not everyone likes the idea. The advocates of this type of fish farming are moving ahead irresponsibly without any caution to some of the wider societal issues, namely who has the right to use the ocean for private property purposes. Fish farming and the growing debate over fencing the oceans this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For millennia, the high seas have been regarded as the common heritage of all people. In recent years, nations have expanded their claims to the oceans beyond 12 miles to 200. And now the Bush administration is looking at granting businesses the exclusive right to territories on the ocean for fish farming. Aquaculture visionaries at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration look out at the open ocean, and they see an endless blue pasture, prime for farming cod or salmon or shrimp the perfect place to anchor miles of undersea cages teeming with fish. Noah wants to quintuple the amount of fish farming in American waters and argues that fish farmers will be more bankable if they have property rights and that in turn will encourage more aquaculture. Critics are skeptical of this privatization of the seas and we'll check in with one of them in a moment. But first, we turn to Linda Chavez, the chief of aquaculture for Noah. Welcome, Linda. Hi, Steve. We're going to talk some about fish farming, and I have to tell you this, that um, over the years as I began to understand how fisheries have declined, um, I got very excited when I was able to buy farmed fish, and particularly farmed salmon, because it's supposed to be so good for you with all the omega-3s. And then I hear that there's a problem with farmed fish, that there are pollution problems, and then the fish itself may have some toxins in it. So help me sort this out. Fish farming a good idea? Yes, fish farming is definitely a good idea. In fact, about a third of global seafood production today comes from fish farming, and uh, we expect that it's going to continue to increase. And with regard to your you know, reference to or question about uh, whether or not it's healthy, yes, it is absolutely healthy for you. The most recent flurry of uh, activity around the presence of PCBs in farmed salmon has been somewhat misleading. Uh, there are PCBs in a lot of different food sources, and what's really most important is that the levels that have been found are considerably lower than what the FDA action level is, and in fact, there are actually PCBs in other types of food uh, at much higher levels than what is found in salmon. Now, as I understand it, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has plans to vastly expand fish farming. Why? Well, we can't uh, even begin to meet the seafood demand in the United States. We currently import over 75% of what we consume. We've calculated that by 2025, we are going to be needing 4 million metric tons more seafood than we eat today. And the only place that can come from is fish farming. 
the industry is going to continue to develop, and we might as well have some of the economic benefits of that expansion accrue to the United States. We also believe that it can be done in an environmentally responsible manner, and we definitely have a role in making sure that happens. Tell me more about the plan for to, to expand fish farming here. Where would you put these fish farms? Well, fish farms can be put and currently are being put in coastal areas, but we have authority in the EEZ, which is the area beyond state waters, out to 200 miles. And there are great opportunities for putting fish farms out in that area. By doing that, you get away from fragile coastal areas. You also reduce the competition with other coastal uses. And you also find yourself in deeper waters, uh, frequently cleaner waters without some of the agricultural runoff that you have in coastal areas, and you also have uh, more current, and any impacts on the in, on the environment will be minimized in that offshore area. And I know a lot of people are concerned about there being many, many farms all over the EEZ, but in fact, you really don't need to use that much space because of the uh, high production rates that you can accomplish in fish farms, and you're really not talking about a great surface area. So how do you deal with the question then of of having this private farm out in, well, this is really public territory? Well, the precedent has been set that we do have oil platforms out in the EEZ and the ocean floor, the seabed, is leased to oil companies to put in place uh, oil platforms. So the precedent has been set and leasing would provide those people involved with some assurance that they would be able to operate for a specified period of time. If you want to establish a fish farm and you need to go to the bank, you need to be able to make some assurance that you're going to be able to operate in a given area for a period of years that will allow you to grow your fish out to uh, harvestable size. What originally gave rise to this idea um, is it the change in technology? Uh, people from the fish farming industry come to the government to ask for this. Uh, how did this ball get rolling? Well, there's. I think it's a, a number of uh, things have happened. It's become increasingly difficult to get permits in the inshore environment. You have a lot of people who don't want to look off their out their living rooms at uh, fish farms uh, right off their you know expensive waterfront property, and so it becomes it's becoming increasingly difficult to find areas to use in the inshore environment. At the same time, there have been a lot of technological advancements that allow us to move offshore to uh, areas where we can withstand high waves, storms, uh, and things of that nature. The industry, uh, some people have seen that this is, the, this is the place to go to be able to expand. In Maine, not far from where I am on the East Coast, uh, in recent years there have been uh, difficulties with uh, infections, with disease in the fish that are being farmed. How would deep-sea fish farming affect those risks? Well, I think that th there's been a lot of progress in the area of disease control as well. We are now using much fewer antibiotics in fish farming. We're developing technology to rapidly vaccinate many, many fish. Uh, we're also learning more about vaccinating fish against disease. So, uh, yes, there have been some problems in the past, but I think that we can uh, control those. What about the legal framework for this? If I wanted to go out now uh, and, and put up one of these farms encouraged by uh, the interest in this, um, what would I have to do? 
Well, right now, uh, you would have to check with the Army Corps of Engineers. You would have to go to the Environmental Protection Agency. You would have to come to the National Marine Fisheries Service. There are quite a few different permits right now that would have to be um, obtained. And how would you like to change this? Well, I think that what the industry has asked for is they would like to be able to go to one entity that would coordinate the entire permit application process to make it faster, uh, hopefully less costly. They would like to see a program that is focused on aquaculture, that understands aquaculture. Linda, in, um, in British Columbia, there's been a lot of flap about fish farming there, and Um, one of the complaints is that some of the farm fish, which aren't native to the area, escape, and then they crowd out, they outcompete the local wild salmon. Uh, What's what's to prevent escapes from these cages so far offshore? How how will they be monitored? Well, one of the ways you could monitor uh, escapes, or one of the ways you could monitor is to tag fish to determine whether or not... uh, when you find one, whether or not it is actually uh, an escape. I I think it's important that we minimize the possibility for escapes, and I think that we've come a long way in the design of net pens and net cages so that there's a lot less of that going on. Now, you said that um, oil, uh, the oil business, uh, has set a precedent for this kind of leasing. I'm wondering how much uh, the problem of what to do with unproductive oil rigs might be driving this proposal to have these uh, open ocean fish farms, fish ranches. Well, I don't think that what to do with uh, non-productive oil platforms is driving this at all, although they do provide a great opportunity. and uh, Opportunity for... Well, they provide an opportunity, one, because there's uh, an area to work on, and there's also something there that's already anchored into the water that is a stable platform, if you will. I could envision the development of hatcheries on an oil rig uh, where you would have seawater and you could grow your juvenile fish right there and then stock them into a net cage immediately adjacent to the um, platform. What's, what's the most promising aspect of this? What's, what's the thing that's most exciting about it? Well, I think the, the future potential for development of an aquaculture industry in the United States so that we can rely on products being developed in the United States so that we can have some economic benefits accrue to the United States. I think there's a great future for aquaculture in the EEZ. I've been speaking with Linda Chavez, Aquaculture Coordinator for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. And now for a different view on granting rights to the ocean, we turn to Michael Skladani of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, a Minneapolis group that focuses on agriculture and the environment. Hello, sir. Hi. How's everything? Now, I'm wondering, how does this proposal to grant private property rights in the open ocean around the United States, uh, how does that sound to your ears? Uh, it sounds like a real, real harbinger of a lot of problems. There's a lot of questions, and they're not being addressed. Well, what's wrong, with though, with eliminating the haphazardness that we seem to have now with ocean fish farming? Uh, Wouldn't it be a good idea to have clear rules that are enforceable? Uh, Yes, but I think, too, that there is a lot of uncertainty here. Look at what has happened in coastal salmon farming 
along up in British Columbia, as well as other parts of the world, including Chile, Norway, Scotland, and so forth. Uh, there's been a whole host of environmental problems. Uh, fish escapes. Uh, they escape from the net pens. Uh, they get out into the streams. They're uh, basically invasive species. Uh, number two would be the amount of drug use uh, that takes place in those net pens, uh, antibiotics, uh, the waste that emanates from the uh, fish pens as well. Uh, these are all unknown factors. And I think more importantly, you have an area in the ocean where it's not very fertile. Now, what's going to happen when you start concentrating nutrient inputs into that particular uh, area? What do you mean by nutrient inputs? Uh, fish feed, uh, the concentration of biological matter. You mean fish poop? Yeah, fish poop. And fish feed, too, as well, because some of that fish feed is uneaten. I know they say that, you know, they're very efficient in that regard. That has a lot of unknown um, ramifications to it, and I don't think the issue has been adequately addressed. So the environmental problems are definitely there. They're not going to go away. What about um, attracting mammals, attracting sharks, and so forth? It seems as though the people who are uh, advocating pushing this proposition forward uh, aren't addressing those questions in any really responsible sense. Now, the people, though, who are writing this proposal say they're aware of these concerns. They, they understand that there's a problem with uh, too much uh, feed being fed. Uh, they're concerned also about uh, fecal pollution and that they're uh, going to take steps to safeguard, uh, safeguard the ocean in this respect. Uh, they've said the same thing about salmon farming, and I just offer that as an example. It's replete with all kinds of environmental uh, effects that weren't anticipated, and I think we're seeing the same scenario unfold here, too. Okay, we need to take a break right now. We'll be back in just a moment with more from Michael Scladani and preview a major federal assessment of the oceans. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and I'm speaking with Michael Scladani of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. We're talking about the Bush administration call for a major increase in fish farms and plans to put them out in the open ocean. Now, Michael, as I understand it, you don't feel the public has been adequately involved in the process. Uh, tell me, what kind of information is missing, and how would you like to see the process change? I think what is happening here is that the advocates of this type of fish farming are moving ahead irresponsibly without any caution to some of the wider societal issues, namely who has the right to use the ocean for private property purposes. Uh, that needs to be more and better defined. This is our ocean. This is our common heritage. This is what's at stake. What are you worried about? What are you afraid of here in terms of the public trust? Uh, the selling off of our oceanic heritage, uh, the privatization of the continental shelf uh, for benefits garnered by just a few people. Now, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says, look, we need to have a lot more room to farm fish. The fact is that the demand for seafood is going up. It's not being caught. Uh, these type of operations are a way to get uh, the kind of fish that people want and will pay good money for. What's wrong with that argument in your view? 
uh, number one, you know, the seafood trade deficit has been bannered about for decades now. Uh, we have a significant seafood trade deficit. What's the best solution to that? And we're not talking about, you know, feeding the world here. We're talking about raising luxury end items. Uh, really, that doesn't dent the seafood trade deficit all that much. I think there's other forms of aquaculture, which could be a very good practice, couldn't other forms of aquaculture, for example, inland small-scale fish farms, be a better response to reduce our trade deficit uh, as it's being advocated? No. I think what we have here basically is growth for profit that's going to benefit a few people, all right, and not the public. I'm just wondering if there is any configuration of deep ocean fish farming that you think would make sense to you. Uh, at this point, no, I don't see it happening. I think, again, uh, if you've followed aquaculture development on this planet for the last 30 years, like I have, you see areas in need, for example, inland, for example, in the tropics, in the developing part of the world. Uh, you see these glitzy coastal high-luxury items being uh, raised for export. That has accelerated with shrimp and salmon since the mid-'80s. Uh, open ocean aquaculture is a continuation of this export, profit-driven kind of industry. Where the problems still exist and still remain in the world are in those inland areas, okay? So we need to be real clear about whether we're feeding the world or we're doing something else. And in this case, we're selling fish to make to make lots of money for a few individuals. And this has unfortunately hurt uh, the legacy of aquaculture, which of course can be a very, very sustainable, beneficial activity for society as a whole. But um, recently that has not been the case. Michael Skladani is with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, a Minneapolis group that focuses on agriculture and the environment. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you very much. It's been a year of unusual attention to the world's oceans, and this focus will soon peak when a panel of experts chosen by the White House reveals its long-awaited appraisal of U.S. ocean policy. Conservationists hope this high-level commission will call for roping off large swaths of ocean into no-take zones. They also yearn for an end to fishing gear that scours the ocean floor. These hopes reflect their view of the ocean as now being depleted of much of its riches. Oceanographer and writer Sylvia Earle shares this view. She's a former chief scientist at NOAA who has set a number of diving records. We caught up with her at a meeting of ocean conservationists in Baja, California, and she was eager to recount the changes she's witnessed underwater over the years. Imagine going wading in the Florida Keys, just up to your knees, and looking out and seeing pink conch crawling around like little bulldozers by the hundreds. Now, you know, it's illegal to take pink conch in Florida because there's so few left. It's really a joy when you find one. Nassau grouper, when I was a kid, they were so common. You'd go out and they were like puppies out there looking at you. Come play. It was almost the feeling that you got when you could see them, with their big sad eyes looking up at you and almost inviting you to go out and, and fool around in the ocean with them. And then when I began diving, which also took place in the 50s and could see the abundance of large fish, the relative abundance of sea turtles, um, they were sold in the markets in the 50s, even in the 60s. That stopped. But we do take other species that the ocean simply cannot provide on a sustainable basis, not on a large-scale basis. It's all right maybe to go out and, and catch a duck or a goose, 
a wild one or quail now and then from a wild population and get away with it, but we don't find these wild creatures in supermarkets and in restaurants across the nation, across the world. But we do expect to go to supermarkets and restaurants and find ocean wildlife. And we couldn't do this when I was a kid. We just, we didn't expect to have wild fish or shrimp at every meal. It was a, a sometimes treat, a now and then thing. Today, when you think about the number of places that you go expecting to be able to order shrimp, expect to be able to find lobster, never mind that the lobster might have come from half a world away. We in the United States are consuming lobsters from the Galapagos Islands, causing big problems in the Galapagos. I don't begrudge the fishermen for trying to make a living, but we are the ones who are providing the market that inspires them to go out and take from their own backyard and ship to distant markets. We're so disconnected from the source that we don't see the cause and effect relationships. The problems are market driven and we drive the market by insisting that there be shrimp at every restaurant that we go to. We just say, I love shrimp. Uh, ooh, yeah, so if you know the real cost of shrimp, you might think twice. Conservationists like Sylvia Earle question why fishermen and fishing companies have the primary say in deciding how much sea life is taken from the ocean. Uh, you could say, I have a vested interest in these creatures. Why should you, with a net who want to take, have any more right to take than I who want to have them out there alive? Do those who <laughs> see the dead fish, dead creature value, should they have a greater voice than, than those who say, I, I think that those creatures are more important to humankind as a part of what makes the world function? Sylvia Earle, explorer-in-residence for the National Geographic Society, has logged more than 6,000 hours underwater. When the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy issues its report, it is expected to lead to a shake-up in the way we manage the oceans. But conservationists like Sylvia Earle may be disappointed. While the Commission will address the use of destructive fishing gear and the importance of marine reserves, its report will also reflect a view of the ocean as being underutilized for food and energy needs. Thus, it will likely endorse leasing the ocean for fish farms. And advocates of more oil and gas drilling offshore may find the report encouraging in the face of moratoria imposed by a number of states. With us now is one of the Commission members, appointed by President Bush, a man who was the very first chief of the Environmental Protection Agency under President Nixon and again under President Reagan, William Ruckelshaus. Nice to have you back on the program, Bill. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, over the past year, uh, some reputable scientists have uh, told us that it, it seems possible, perhaps even likely, that only 10% of the fish uh, that were once in the oceans now remain. You were on the commission when that study was published. What were your thoughts at the time? Well, that wasn't news to us. You know, some people will contest that number of 10%, but say it's 20% or 25%. That's still an incredible decline and a, a very serious problem. Our commission's reaction is we've got to do something about this. This the, the, Our government, the governments of the world, have got to stop that decline. So what do you think uh, you'll end up recommending to address this shocking reality that we have lost, well, between how you count, 75 to 90 percent of our fish? Uh, bear in mind we're not talking about all fisheries. There are some fisheries that are healthy. In Alaska, for instance, the way they've managed the salmon up there and other ground fish have kept them quite healthy, and 
the system they use up there is essentially the one that we're recommending be adopted uh, throughout the country, and that is that you separate out the scientific process where you determine how many fish can be caught in any one year. You separate that process from the process how that should be allocated. Who should be allowed to catch that pie that the scientists define? That separation doesn't currently exist, and uh, we're recommending that that separation be made very clear. Now, uh, this review that you've done with the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy, uh, this is huge. It's a really comprehensive review, and it uh, I would say that's what the closest scrutiny that U.S. policy towards the oceans has, has gotten since the creation of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which was put under the Department of Commerce. And, and here's my question. How good of a fit is this for our premier ocean agency? How effective is it to have the folks who are studying the oceans be in the Department of Commerce, which is about business, after all? Uh, Well, it's true. Uh, What most people don't realize is that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, is about 65 percent of the budget of the Commerce Department. So moving that out of the Commerce Department and making a separate agency out of it has to be, first of all, endorsed by the administration and then supported by the Congress, all of which, even if it were to happen, would take a significant amount of time. What we're suggesting is there are steps the president, the administration can take immediately uh, without additional legislation, the the congressional process is lengthy enough that we're concerned that the problem is and the problem is immediate enough that we need immediate action to do, to deal with it. Let's talk about the National Oceans Council uh, recommendation that I uh, gather that your commission will have. I, I understand this is going to be in the White House, which would make it overseen by an assistant to the president. Why do you want to do this? Why would it help? Uh, we are recommending the creation of a National Ocean Council as to be headed, as you said, by an assistant to the president. It will be made up of the major cabinet, our agency heads, who have res- significant responsibilities for the ocean. It will have a coordinating function to make sure that when we have a problem in the ocean, there will be a mechanism that will ensure a, a much greater level of coordination than now exists. Salmon out in the in the Northwest is a good example where the salmon have been listed as endangered. There are several federal agencies as well as state agencies with responsibility for the management of those fish. There is no coordinating mechanism either at the national level or at the state level. Now, what happens to uh, existing baykeepers um, under this arrangement? I'm thinking of the California Coastal Commission, which has been pretty active uh, in the area of of, of managing the the coastal oceans there uh, on, on the West Coast. Um, How will they interact uh, with this? Well, that's a very good question, and that's why we are recommending that with the creation of the council, we take a two- to five-year period working with the states and local governments to determine what kind of regional structures organized along ecosystem lines make sense. And where a state has an active coastal zone program like they do in California, incorporating that program into the regional structure has got to be, in very large measure, uh, a determination led by the states. Now, they're not just people who fish or people who run fish farms or, or scientists or environmental advocates here. They're also representatives from the minerals exploration and oil drilling cracter, uh, contractors on the U.S. Oceans Commission. Now, what sort of things do they want to see preserved or guaranteed in any kind of new policy? Uh, these members, by the way, were very productive and objective uh, and helpful members of our commission. And they are living under a regime now that has existed for many years. And 
What they point out is that we are currently managing offshore energy sources, for instance, through state moratoria, that in most states of the country, any additional uh, opening of land for oil or gas production is prohibited, except where it has already been permitted. For instance, if you go to the Gulf of Mexico, off the coast of Texas and Louisiana, there are some 4,000 wells that go out several hundred miles. And there's a line right down the middle of the Gulf of Mexico that if you go east of that line, there's virtually no production. And it's because the states have declared moratoria on any additional production of oil and gas. We simply point that out in our commission and don't come to any specific recommendations about it, except it's pretty clear, I think, to most of us who are there and not just those who are involved in drilling, that this is not the most rational way in the world to uh, to make these kind of judgments, to declare moratoria in states which currently have no production, uh, simply because the public is so uh, is so adamantly opposed to any ad- additional production, particularly where they have no experience with it. You think that we should be doing more drilling offshore, it sounds like. No, no. <laughs> I have not said that. All I did was describe how we're currently doing it. Uh, and how we're currently doing it is very hard to make sense out of. Yeah, I know you didn't say that, but it sounds like you think that maybe we should be doing some more drilling. Uh, well, I, I, I haven't said it, and uh, uh, in my view, what we need, to, what 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 this country needs to do is is to have a a much more extensive national dialogue about it before there's ever going to be an understanding of what the pros and cons of it are, and then a rational judgment can be made about what should be done next. Bill, I'm struck by. Uh by this announcement for the administration that uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is uh, looking to quintuple the amount of fish farming in the ocean off American shores over these next 20 years. How can you do that and have large marine protected areas and take care of all the concerns that your commission is raising? Uh, The commission is going to recommend that a regime be created to control this so that we get the advantages of fish farming, which are considerable, uh, potentially considerable, and at the same time avoid the environmental or adverse health effects. Uh, all of these things are are legitimate concerns, but in my view, that you can't address them. And you, but you need a regulatory regime to do it. I'm sorry, even as a Republican, I'm suggesting we need rules. You can't just leave this to the whim of the individual operator without. Uh, having the public doubt the viability of this approach uh, or uh, are tempting people to cut costs by uh, doing things in an environmentally unsustainable way. So in my view, we can continue to pursue this opportunity for the country as well as the world, but we need to do it carefully and thoughtfully uh, and uh, paying attention to all these potential for adverse effects. William Ruckelshaus was twice chief of the Environmental Protection Agency under Presidents Nixon and Reagan and serves on the United States Commission on Ocean Policy, which will soon be issuing the most comprehensive look, federal look, at ocean policy in more than 30 years. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you. Just ahead, a bridge that may serve to disconnect a people from their culture. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. There's nothing quite like the smell of a fresh bag of microwave popcorn. But for those who work with it day in and day out, the vapors from popcorn may have adverse health effects. Recently, 30 workers filed suit against a microwave popcorn factory in Jasper, Missouri. They claim that inhaling the fumes from huge vats of popcorn butter flavoring has caused severe respiratory problems, a condition that's come to be known as popcorn packer's lung. 
One worker who has been at 20% lung capacity after several months at the plant has already been awarded $20 million. Meanwhile, the Environmental Protection Agency has started to look at the kinds of chemicals released into the air from popping popcorn. Over the course of several months, researchers will pop 50 different brands and flavors of microwave popcorn. They'll analyze any volatile organic compounds or particles released into the air from the popcorn and from the microwavable bags themselves. A main focus of this research will be diacetyl, a compound that gives butter its aroma. According to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, large quantities of diacetyl can cause potentially cumulative lung damage. Federal officials stress that consumers are at little risk of respiratory disease, given their limited exposure to popcorn vapors. The EPA expects to have results from its study sometime in the fall. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Aveda, an earth-conscious beauty company committed to preserving natural resources and finding more sustainable ways of doing business. Information available at Aveda.com. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities on the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. At the northern end of the archipelago that stretches a thousand miles down Chile towards Cape Horn is an island the size of Puerto Rico called Chiloé. Chiloé has developed its own mythology and culture thanks to its isolation. Its folklore, quaint towns, succulent seafood, and the picturesque ferry crossing have made it a tourism treasure. But some fear the island's isolated mystique may soon be lost. For its 2010 bicentennial, Chile wants to build the longest bridge in Latin America to join Chiloé with the rest of the nation. Government promises faster access to hospitals and easier access for tourists. Yet many islanders claim this bridge isn't really for them, but for a fish, and a foreign fish at that. As part of Worlds of Difference, a series by Homelands Productions, Alan Weissman reports. A ghost is singing. His words tell how he drowned when a storm snatched the boat that was taking him to his wedding. The place where his bride waited in vain is a big green island that hangs like a teardrop off the south coast of Chile, called Chiloé. On Chiloé, hearing ghosts or seeing spirits is accepted, even expected. There's La Pincoya, a long-haired nymph in a seaweed skirt whose dance lures the fish. Or El Trauco, the gnarly forest troll who's to blame when single girls on Chiloé find themselves pregnant. And our unlucky groom is now surely aboard a schooner named El Caleuche. El Caleuche is un barco, un barco fantasma. The Caleuche is a phantom ship. Its crews are drowned sailors lost at sea. Whenever the fog enshrouds the shore or moves up the rivers, that means El Caleuche is here. For centuries, the phantom ship Caleuche had no shortage of drowned seamen. 
Chiloé's original natives, the Mapuche Indians, had only bark canoes to reach their cousins on the mainland, a mile and a half across a windy channel. The sailboats used by settlers sent to this farthest outpost of the Spanish Empire weren't much safer. We're in the Santa Maria Loreto de Achao Church, the oldest wooden church in Chile. Chiloé historian Renato Cárdenas is descended from a Spanish sea captain who ran aground here in 1613. Stroking his silky gray goatee, Renato explains that this island was so remote that missionaries couldn't even get nails to build churches. This church is made with wooden pegs, no nails. Isolated together, Chiloé Spaniards and Mapuches intermingled bloodlines and beliefs and called themselves Chilotes. In 1958, regular ferry service finally began. Soon, tourists arrived to try to glimpse El Trauco and to see stilt houses and wooden churches built from pegs and interlocking shingles, so charming that they've been recognized by UNESCO. The churches are now official World Heritage Sites. Chiloé also has more than 30 folk festivals every summer. Felix Oyasun heads a local development council. He says tourists come for Chilote folklore and music and a cuisine of 200 native potatoes and huge mussels and oysters. But the enchantment, he says, starts with the crossing. Arriving by ferry is like going through a magic door to an island like none that exists anywhere else in Chile or South America. Which is why he was stunned to hear about Chile's plan to turn his island into a peninsula. For its bicentennial in 2010, the government wants to build Latin America's longest suspension bridge at a cost of a third of a billion dollars. That would turn a 20-minute ferry passage into a three-minute car trip. It will be a real shock for the tourists. Chiloé needs an airport, a hospital, roads. It would be a contradiction to have a gorgeous luxury of a bridge to such a deficient place. The government has to come to its senses. Nine ferry boats with four diesels apiece run constantly between the mainland and the island. The ferries serve their function, but they just aren't enough. Businessman Sergio Villalobos leads support for the bridge from the town of Ancud. He thinks the sheer volume of traffic a bridge carries would more than make up for the loss of some romantic tourists. When the Golden Gate was built, they went from 10,000 trips a month to 140,000 vehicles every day. And all those customers, he adds, will fortify culture, not harm it. We'll train more people to form folklore groups for the tourist flow, like hula professionals in Hawaii or mariachis in Mexico. That used to be just for fun. Now there are mariachi schools. We need to do that here. Bridges bring progress and new industry. Ancud could use new industry. This town of 30,000 used to be Chiloé's fishing capital. But cod and sea bass are now so depleted that it's down to one processing plant. Yet when you mention the jobs the bridge might bring to local fishermen, you don't get the expected reply. 
It will be worse for us because traditions will be lost. The magic of the island will be lost. Our mythology will be lost. Bridges form connections, unite communities. Yet all over this island, emotions run high against one that would link Chiloé to the modern world. One reason, say these fishermen, is the belief that it's not really for Chiloé at all. It's just to benefit the salmon industry. In Chile, fishing is fishing, but salmon is an industry. Today, half the salmon U.S. consumers eat comes from here. But 25 years back, there were no salmon in this country. We are in Caraco de Vélez, an historic place. This is where salmon farming began, not just in Chiloé, but in all Chile. A lot of us are grateful for farm salmon. In an age of collapsing sea harvests, groceries and sushi bars everywhere abound with thick orange salmon fillets. Maybe you've heard that Chile is the world's second biggest salmon exporter after Norway. But in these globalized times, that's a little confusing because half the Chilean companies are owned by Norwegians themselves or their European neighbors. In the 1970s, tests showed that isolated Chiloé had some of the clearest water left on the planet. Soon, European salmon growers were floating giant cages of Atlantic salmon transplanted from Norway in lakes and inlets all around this Pacific island. Renato Cardenas talks to a fisheries technician at a new installation on a bay near Castro, the city where he teaches. We have 280,000 fish, around 40,000 per cage. In two months, we'll double. All those fish, yet only two men are working here. Automated feeders deliver pellets made of ground-up sardines, anchovies, and jack mackerel. To keep the salmon coming, Chile has become the world's second biggest producer of fish meal. A motor pushes food to the cages, so fewer workers are needed, and the salmon grow more uniformly. We monitor by camera to make sure they eat everything, so less food is lost. Yet many pellets pass right through the cages. Combined with salmon feces on lake bottoms and sea floors, they create enormous algae blooms in Chiloé's once crystalline waters. The same thing happened in Norway, one reason why the Norwegians came here. Chiloé fishermen claim this pollution and aggressive escaped salmon are ruining natural fishing grounds. The total sales of uh, the year 2002 were $973 million worth of exports. Rodrigo Infante, general manager of the National Salmon Growers Trade Association, says Chile is on its way to becoming the world's number one salmon producer. We feel the bridge itself will be a positive thing for the island and, and its people itself. And the I bridge, think he the, explains, the is actually key to a grand plan that goes far beyond Chiloé. Well, Chile has 55,000 kilometers of coastline and 95% of that to the south. Plenty, plenty, plenty of areas to be developed. That southern coastline is a pristine puzzle of islands, fjords, and volcanoes. No road can traverse it, but a bridge to Chiloé would extend the Pan-American Highway a hundred miles farther, creating a gateway to those untapped regions. Chile's grand vision is fish farms clear down to Tierra del Fuego to triple salmon production. On the eastern shore of Chiloé, Renato Cárdenas and his cousin Pancho gather mussels. I was born here on the shore. I grew up like algae, like a mollusk. 
This beach was my playground. Behind them rises their hamlet's wooden church steeple and hills where teams of oxen plow. In front lie many green islands, and beyond, on the mainland, the snowy peaks of the Chilean Andes, golden in the afternoon light. Just offshore bobs a huge raft of the omnipresent aluminum cages, near a line of abandoned styrofoam floats. That's a salmon farm, and that's the remains of one. They contaminated the bottom so badly, they have to move it. Where they moved it was right atop rich shellfish beds where Renato's relatives collect. So they've had to work a little harder to fill their 30-kilo sacks with two local mussel varieties, small sweet choros and big meaty cholgas. Inside, three women at a wood stove are grating a heap of yellow and purple potatoes, mixing them with lard and flour, then patting them into rolls. In truth, there have always been bridges to Chiloé, like the satellite dish that brings the Simpsons in Spanish to the TV the kids watch while their mothers cook. Another leads back to a heritage shared across time and ocean with other Pacific Isles, from Easter Island to Polynesia. What they are preparing here would be called luau on Hawaii. On Chiloé, it is curanto. On the hillside above the house, Renato and the men, cousins and neighbors, cut three-foot-wide pange leaves. They'll cover the loaves of potato bread and the mounds of mussels to seal in the steam from the fire-heated rocks. The cooking hole is the same one they've been using for generations. It took only an hour for the curanto to cook, but the eating lasts twice as long. Silence descends except for the clatter of mussel shells and the passing of wine bottles. Until Pancho's accordion and the guitars come out. Sometime past midnight, the music ends. Renato Cardenas sits with his cousins on the wooden steps of the house his grandfather built. Directly above hang the Milky Way and the Southern Cross, but they shine fainter than they used to. There is no night here anymore. Offshore, the huge platform of floating salmon cages glares under floodlights. About a year ago, someone reasoned that since salmon feed by sight, by adding lights, you could grow them to size in eight months instead of 12. The world becomes tangled in sound. Along with the night, tranquility has also vanished. Since little electricity reaches Chiloé's tiny coastal hamlets, each salmon raft has a droning diesel generator to power its lights. Chilote legends say that Chiloé was formed when an angered sea serpent, Kaikai, made the waters rise, flooding the land. Taking pity, the land serpent, Tenten, lifted the mountains and the islands so people could seek refuge. About a decade ago, a big storm here destroyed half the salmon cages, masses of free salmon swimming in the open. The people's explanation was that Kaikai was responding to what they are doing to the sea. This was Kaikai's revenge. 
It's well known on Chiloé that the center column of the new bridge will rest on a rock that used to be an island until an earthquake in 1960 submerged it. Or maybe that was Kaikai too. The spirits won't let the bridge happen either, says one of Renato's cousins. Renato smiles. Maybe not, he replies. For Living on Earth, on the island of Chiloé, I'm Alan Wiseman, reporting. Our story on Chiloé is part of Worlds of Difference, Homeland's production series funded in part by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. For pictures and more information on Chiloé, visit our website, livingonearth.org. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, smallpox, ricin, and anthrax make up today's devastating arsenal of biological weapons. But what about stinging bees, snake-tipped arrows, and bodies riddled with the plague? These were the bioweapons of choice for groups like the ancient Mesopotamians. They went out with terracotta pots and very carefully gathered stinging scorpions, whose uh, sting can be fatal, and they probably threw in a lot of assassin bugs as well. And then they took them back to their fortress and they waited for the Roman siege. Ancient biological weapons, next time on Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We leave you this week in the Tuscan village of Granyana. On late afternoon, a shepherd brings his 50 belled sheep down from the mountains to be milked and turned in for the night. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Cynthia Graber, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Now Tarot mixes the program with help from Paul Wabrick and Stephen Belter. Allison Dean composed our theme. 
environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. 10% of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. This is NPR, National Public Radio.